Welcome to this Uvila Audio presentation of The Rock is Shadow by John Blaine. Volume 5. All Uvula Audio books are in the public domain. Chapter 11. The Adventure in the Old Barn. And look what he has there beside him, Scotty whispered. Rick saw the leaves of a book fluttering in the breeze, and the red binding flashed in the sun. It was a copy of Psychiatry Simplified. He attempted to move back into the shadow of the trees, but just as he did, his foot slipped and he scattered pebbles over the face of the rock. John Stringfellow's head jerked almost imperceptibly, but in a split second he had returned his gaze to the barn across the water. Did he see us? Rick whispered. I don't know, Scotty answered, but I don't see any sense in pussyfooting. Let's just go talk to him. They walked out from the shadow of the trees and headed boldly for Stringfellow. He turned just as they arrived at his side and smiled up at them. Out for a stroll, boys? Yes, Rick replied. What are you doing to amuse yourself, sir? The thin scientist looked out toward the sea and placed the binoculars to his eyes. I'm making a survey of the bird species around the island, he said calmly. Very wide variety in this area. May I take a look? Rick asked, extending his hand for the binoculars. The glasses dropped slowly from Stringfellow's eyes. I'm afraid Professor Wise is pretty particular about who handles his glasses. Oh, one look wouldn't hurt, Rick insisted. He was certain now that Stringfellow didn't want strange eyes looking at that barn across the way. But to his surprise, the scientist said, Well, I suppose one look wouldn't hurt. He held the glasses out to Rick. Scotty watched tensely as Rick fastened the monoculars to his eyes and twisted the adjustment screw. For a full thirty seconds, the boy held the glasses on the barn sign. Finally, he handed them back to the scientist. Thank you, he said. Well, shall we walk a while longer, Scotty? Scotty could hardly wait until they reached the path out of Stringfellow's hearing. Well, what about it? he whispered. No message. Rick said flatly. But the book on his lap, Scotty protested. That's the finger of guilt if I ever saw one. I agree with you, Rick answered. But the finger of guilt has pointed to everyone on the island so far. This just gives us one more suspect. But what are we going to do? Scotty asked as they turned up the path. Are we going to just sit here and wait for the trader's next move? Make a suggestion, Rick said wryly. I've run out of ideas. Scotty thought for a moment. How about the love letter? We should make some attempt to get that decoded. Well, that's right, Rick said. Maybe Jerry Webster knows some code expert. He gets around a lot and knows some important people. I'll call him and ask. He reached for the phone and soon was connected with the morning record. Jerry Webster answered, and Rick swiftly outlined his problem to the young reporter. Yeah, a friend of mine, Hume Wallace, is a cryptographer, Jerry told him but it may take a couple of days for him to work it out. Rick read the love letter to him and urged him to get it decoded as soon as possible. As he hung up, he said to Scotty, That's our biggest lead to the traitor. If we get the letter decoded, there may be a signature on it. You hope, Scotty said. Yeah, and I still say that sign on the barn figures in the traitor's plans. I think we should go and take a close look at it. Okay, Scotty answered. Let's go. 
As they left the house, Dismal ran up to greet them, barking excitedly. Rick, busy speculating about the meaning of the changing sign, greeted him without the usual enthusiasm. The pup, hurt feelings showing in the dejected slump of his tail, fell into step. A flight of wooden stairs led down to the cove in which the island boats were tied up. Rick chose the fast 15-footer and motioned to Scotty to get in. Dismal barked excitedly, his sad eyes pleading. Not today, boy, Rick said. The pup barked again, then rolled over and played dead. Rick couldn't resist. Oh, all right, come on, he said. Dismal leapt into the rear seat, panting his excitement as the engine roared to life. Rick reversed the engine and backed out, then swung the boat around and gave it the throttle. The stern bit into the swells and the bow lifted, pointing toward the mainland. Spray whipped against the windshield as the boat took the swells. Rick held the boat steady on a course that would bring him to the point nearest the barn. While he let the craft drift into the wooded bank, Scotty leapt out of the cockpit and pulled them up to a convenient tree with the boat hook. Then he tied the boat fast. It's about a half a mile from here, Rick said. They trudged through the woods and into plowed fields, dismal ranging far ahead, his nose busy with new scents. What exactly do you expect to find? Scotty asked. I don't know, maybe nothing, but I won't be satisfied until I've had a look, Rick confessed. They could see the sign clearly now. Then the barn itself. It looked deserted, but they waited at the edge of the field for long minutes. Nothing there, Scotty said. Not even a cow. Rick leapt lightly over the wire fence and led the way to the barn. At the door, they stopped again, looking around to be sure they were alone. It's all right, I guess, he said, and they went in. It was dim inside the barn. Rick looked around, searching for he didn't know what. He could see at once that the barn was empty. He guessed by a few remnants of moldy hay and the mow that it hadn't been used for years. Nothing here, Scotty commented. Except mice, Rick pointed to Dismal, who was scrambling across the floor after a tiny mouse. The pup ran head-on into the wall, and it gave a hollow sound. Hey, did you hear that? Rick exclaimed. In an instant, he was investigating. His probing fingers found a loose board. He tugged and it came away, revealing a hidden closet. Scotty bent and peered into the hole. Getting up, he said in disgust, Paint. Nothing but a few old paint cans and some brushes. Let's see, Rick sniffed. Turpentine. These brushes have been used and not very long ago. What does that mean? Well, the sign has been changed, hasn't it? Whoever did it used this paint. And what does that tell us? Nothing. Rick slammed the board back into place a little more violently than necessary. Exactly nothing. He winced as Scotty's fingers dug into his arms. Hey, what? Then he saw what had startled the other boy. Dismal was crouched at the entrance, growling. At that moment, Rick heard the approaching drone of a car engine. Somebody's coming, he gasped. He called Dismal to his side. Stay with me, boy. We don't want them to see you. He joined Scotty in looking for an observation post. Knot holes provided ports through which they could see across the field toward the nearest road. 
Rick put his eyes to one, moving his head back and forth as he searched for the car. Scotty, I see it. It's the same gray sedan. We gotta get out of here, Rick. But how can we? If we go across the field, they'll see us. Scotty's alert eyes were busy, suddenly pointed upward. The hayloft, we can hide up there. Rick didn't stop to comment. He ran for the ladder that led to the loft. At the bottom, he stopped short. Tis, here, boy. He scooped up the dog and made his way up the ladder as rapidly as he could with one hand. Scotty was right behind him. The loft was dusty and rays of sunlight came in through cracks in the roof, but the floorboards were still fairly tightly joined. No one could see them from below. Rick lay flat, moving back and forth until he found a crack in the wall. He looked out at the gray sedan, parked now, its doors open. His heart climbed into his throat and stuck there. Four men were getting out. The two men who looked like prize fighters, the bearded man, and a man with a hideously scarred face whom he had never seen before. Scotty, Rick whispered. Scotty had found a crack of his own. I see him, he whispered hoarsely. The men walked toward the barn and vanished from sight. In a moment, Rick heard them enter the big room below. He crouched silently, hardly daring to breathe. Quogun, an authoritative voice commanded. Get the paint. That must be the man with the scarred face, Rick thought. He knew it wasn't the voice of any of the others. There was a rattle as the board was pulled away from the cupboard, and then a coarse voice said, Looks like someone's bit at this stuff. Are you certain? That was the bearded man. Rick froze. Looks like it, Carlos. The board was partly open. I shut it tight when we left. Probably a chance brawler, Scarface said. No matter. He could learn nothing from a little paint. From beside Rick came a low, rising rumble. He reached out desperately. Dismal was now convinced that something was wrong, and he was going to bark. Rick clamped his hands over the dog's muzzle just as the bark rose in his throat. Diz sniffed, and the rumble died. Rick wiped sweat from his face. Close. Let's get this job over and get back to the plant, Scarface said. Get the ladder and climb up, Gorgon. Paste smoke over drink. I'll read you the numbers. So that was it. Smoke was changed to drink and back again by just pasting the word on. Dismal was suffering again. Quiet, pup, Rick whispered desperately. It had been a mistake to clamp down on the pup's nose. Now his nose was tickling and he wanted to sneeze. Rick stroked the dog's head, trying to soothe the sneeze away. Scotty slid across the floor. What's up? he asked almost inaudibly. Rick fought down a hysterical desire to laugh. He has to sneeze. Rick patted the pup's head. Shh, shh, boy. His eyes were anguished as they met Rick's. Dismal sniffed a couple of times. There was a scraping of a ladder, then the light through the wide cracks in the roof was suddenly blotted out. Rick grabbed Scotty's arm. Kogan was right over their heads. He pointed up and Scotty nodded. Through the cracks, they could see the dark blot of Kogan's body. 
He was evidently the thug in the sports coat. Below, Scarface was reading monotonously. Twenty-four, seventeen, nineteen, thirty-six, twelve. It was the code. Kogan was painting it on the sign right over their heads. Dismal sniffed. Kogan's foot scraped as he worked at the sign. Rick and Scotty sat frozen. Dismal sniffed again. Then so suddenly that Rick jumped, Scotty whipped off his jacket and covered Dismal with it. From under the jacket came a sneeze that sounded like a thunderclap. Hey, did you scrape that ladder? Kogan demanded. The boys weren't even breathing. Their eyes were on the bulk that blotted the light from above. Paint the numbers, Scarface said. Don't you worry about the ladder. I heard something, Kogan insisted. Forty-five, twenty-four, seventeen, Scarface droned on. Rick relaxed. Scarface was going to ignore Kogan's sharp ears. They heard the paintbrush scrape against the roof just above them as the man added the number to the sign. That's the last one, Scarface told him. Come on down. They heard steps on the ladder and then a thump as the man's feet hit the ground. Listen, I know I heard something, Kogan said. Rick stiffened again. Scarface spoke in cold, flat tones. Kogan, I can't afford to have men working for me who have jumpy nerves. We didn't hear anything. Okay, Kogan growled. The boys heard the boards rattle as the paint cans were replaced. Rick applied his eyes to the crack in the wall again and saw the men walk toward the gray sedan. The motor roared to life, and in a moment, the car was speeding across the field toward the highway. Dismal put back his head and sneezed. Rick and Scotty began to laugh, weak with relief. Sneeze again, Rick said. Bark your head off. They're gone. Dismal laid down and rolled over. You should have played dead a few minutes ago, Scotty said. Come on, dog, let's go. He picked up the pup and carried him down the ladder. After a cautious look around, to be sure no member of the gang had been left behind, the boys dashed outside for a look. Smoke, white cream, it proclaimed. But of the numbers which they had heard Scarface read, there was absolutely no trace. Well, I'll be doggone. Rick looked at the sign and then at Scotty. Where are they? Rick asked. Well, we heard Scarface reading off the numbers, and we heard that Kogan guy painting them up there. They have to be there. But they're not, Scotty protested. Rick turned back into the barn. I want to look at that paint, he said. He selected a can with wet paint on its top and pulled it out. It was ordinary white paint, the same as was used in the background color on the sign. It's just ordinary white paint, as far as I can see, he said. He held the can toward Scotty. The Marine bent to look at the mixture. Just at that moment, Dismal decided that he was being ignored. With a little whine, he rolled over onto his back at Scotty's knee, and his legs were flung into the air, straight against the sky to the can. The can slipped from Rick's grasp, and white paint cascaded over the dog's fur. Diz, you dope! Rick moaned.
With handkerchiefs and scraps of hay, they cleaned the dog's fur as best they could. Then they picked him up bodily and carried him back to the boat. As they roared off toward the island, Rick looked back at the sign and shook his head. Scotty, I can't help feeling that the key to the whole business is right in our hands, and we're just too dumb to see it. Chapter 12. Dismal Does His Bit It had been the busiest and certainly the most adventurous day in Rick's life, but tired as he was, sleep came reluctantly. After half an hour of tossing restlessly, he looked in on Scotty. The young man was sprawled flat, dead to the world. Rick looked at him enviously and went back to his own room. He picked up the spark coil and tinkered with it for a while, making the connections. He attached the small flashlight batteries and pushed the button. The coil buzzed very satisfactorily. The wire was connected to the output of the coil. Now if he held the wire in his hand and pressed the button, anything he might touch would get a dose of electric current. He put the gadget down listlessly. It had seemed a good idea when he had started working on it. Now in the light of recent happenings on Spindrift, it seemed like a waste of time. He got back in bed and tried to will himself to sleep. He blinked sleepily and his eyes closed. His hand fumbled for the bed switch that turned on the lights. The room faded and gave way to the shadowy land between full sleep and awakening. He tossed a little and finally drifted into sleep. Then, suddenly, he was standing up, poised to jump, his eyes wide open, a horrible scream still ringing in his ears. Barbie! He threw open his door and ran down the hall, Scotty right behind him. Other doors were opened as the household jerked to startled wakefulness. They found Barbie standing on her bed, one hand across her eyes, the other with a firm grip on the bedpost. At her feet crushed a very unhappy dismal. Take him away! Please, somebody take him away! She cried. Rick lifted her down bodily. Barbie, what is it? Were you dreaming? She lifted a tear-streaked face. Rick, Dismal's dead. He's a ghost. I saw him. Scotty was speechless. Rick hushed her frightened cries. It's all right, sis. Diz is okay. Here, look. He's worried about you. The pup was looking up. His tail thumped hopefully. There was anguish in his sad eyes. He knew he had caused all the rumpus, but he didn't know why. Neither did Rick. Look at him, Barbie. He's okay. Scotty picked Dismal up and held him close. At the feel of his cold tongue on her cheek, Barbie gave a little jump. Then she reached out a frightened hand and stroked his head. Diz, she said. You're all right, Diz? Sure he is, Scotty assured her. Rick led her to a chair. Sit down, sis. Now tell us what happened. Barbie closed her eyes and shuddered. Well, Rick, I was so frightened. I got into bed and turned out the light, and when I looked over in the corner, there was Diz, and he was all bright and spooky, like a ghost. I screamed, I guess. She gave him an apologetic little smile. I should think you would, Scotty said. The rest of the household was crowding into the room. You must have been dreaming, dear, Mrs. Brandt said. No, Barbie insisted. I hadn't even gotten to sleep yet. Of course you had, 
Hobart Zircon insisted. It's a common thing not to know one has fallen asleep. Rick counted noses swiftly. Weiss and Stringfellow were missing. He asked Zircon where they were. Guarding the lab and the launcher, the huge man said. Against what, I don't know. Rick whispered to his mother. Get them out of here, Mom. I want to talk to Barbie alone. She shooed the others back to their rooms, assuring them that Barbie was perfectly fine. Then she turned to Rick. What is it, dear? Don't you think Barbie was dreaming? No, Rick said. I don't, Mom. He sat down beside his sister. What were you doing just before you went to bed? Barbie hesitated and then said, I was getting a tan. A tan? Scotty looked incredulous. With Rick's ultraviolet lamp, she confessed. She indicated the lamp in the corner. It's July already, and I don't have any tan at all. I wanted to catch up with the rest of the girls. What about Diz, though? Well, he took a sunbath with me. She giggled a little at the thought. Rick was thoughtfully silent for a moment. So that's it. Diz got into some paint today, and that paint must have been sensitive to ultraviolet light. It glowed, that's all. He rose and walked to the ultraviolet lamp and switched it on. Then he turned off the overhead light. Dismal walked into the light to sniff. Rick waited a second, then snapped the ultraviolet light off. Dismal glowed a ghostly blue. Well, that answers the mystery of Dismal, then, Barbie said as Rick turned the lights back on. That isn't the only mystery it solves, Rick remarked, looking at Scotty as he spoke. Think you can sleep now, Barbie? Yes, I'm sorry about the screams. Mrs. Brant kissed her daughter goodnight, and Rick and Scotty walked from the room with Dismal at their heels. Well, now we know why we couldn't see the numbers on the sign, Rick said after he closed the door behind them. Those numbers would only be visible through special lenses that could pick up ultraviolet light. But there's ultraviolet light in the sunlight. How come that didn't make it glow so we could see them? There's not a high enough concentration of UV in sunlight, Rick explained. Special lenses would have to be turned on the paint to see it. That white paint was the thing then, huh? Rick nodded. And the numbers weren't painted there until after we saw Stringfellow looking at that barn. That's why we couldn't see them through the binoculars. Either that or those glasses weren't equipped with special lenses at all. Which would make him innocent, Scotty offered. Not necessarily, Rick replied. He might have been looking to see if there was a message. Besides, he had the code book with him, and he was looking at the sign on the barn. He does sound pretty guilty, all right. I'm sure he's guilty, Rick said. Scotty grinned sourly. Seems to me I heard that song before, about Weiss and Zircon. Rick groaned. I know, I know. We were just as positive before and just as wrong. Let's just admit it, we still haven't found our traitor. Dismal wandered in, sidling up to the boys sheepishly. Here's your ghost, Scotty grinned. Rick bent down to scratch the pup's ribs. Diz promptly rolled over all four legs in the air. Sometimes I think you're not very bright, Rick told him laughing. But spilling that paint was the smartest bit of detecting any of us have done so far. Dismal groaned his satisfaction his hind legs flailing in the air as Rick scratched his ribs. Maybe we better turn over the whole business to Diz, 
Scotty said. He's come closer to solving it than we have. Chapter 13 The Missing Microtron Rick awoke from deep, exhausted sleep with Scotty shaking him. Hit the deck, Scotty teased. You gonna sleep all day? Go away, Rick mumbled. Then he turned over and buried his face in the pillow. It's half past ten, Scotty pleaded. Roll out and come on down to breakfast. I'm starved. Rick sat up and rubbed sleep from his eyes. All right, he answered grumpily. I'll be downstairs, sleep fiend, Scotty said. Rick swung out of bed reluctantly. He felt as though another ten hours of sleep would suit him just fine. But Scotty was right. He couldn't sleep all day. He quickly washed and dressed. Hurrying downstairs, he was amazed at the vitality that grew in him at the smell of bacon and eggs. Stringfellow and Weiss were seated at the table, already hard at work on their late breakfast. Rick greeted them, though a little coolly. He had the uncomfortable feeling that with each good morning he might be addressing a traitor. We've been up all night, Stringfellow explained. I stayed at the launcher and Julius guarded the laboratory. Tonight Scotty and Zircon will act as guards. That's fine, Scotty said. Where's Mr. Zircon now? At the lab, Stringfellow answered. Rick sat down to breakfast, concentrating on his bacon and eggs. He didn't feel like engaging in conversation with the two scientists. How can I be cordial to any of them, he thought. They've all been acting suspiciously. How do I know which one of them is selling us out? Dismal nuzzled his leg, and Rick fed him a small scrap of bacon. The pup put it down on the floor and stared at it for a few moments before eating it. It's all right. It's safe. Go ahead and eat it, dopey. Dismal downed it in one gulp and waited expectantly for more. Rick! Mrs. Brant frowned from the doorway. Are you feeding Dismal at the table again? I'm sorry, Mom. She called to the pup, and he followed her into the kitchen. Rick smiled to himself. His mother was very strict about feeding Diz at the table, but she was the first to put aside small straps for him. At that moment, Hobart Zircon barged into the dining room like a huge whirlwind. His face was red with anger and his voice boomed out at everyone there. Which one of you took the Microtron tube? There was an instant of stunned silence, then all were talking at once. Julius Weiss demanded shrilly, are you accusing us of stealing the Microtron Hobart? Rick jumped to his feet. Are you sure it's gone, Professor? Sure. Of course I'm sure. The socket is empty. It was Stringfellow who restored order. Listen, everyone, please, gentlemen, one at a time. You're certain it's not in the lab, Hobart? Didn't I say so? I looked everywhere. Stringfellow's calm eyes went from one to another. Well, this is serious, but somehow I just can't believe the tube is missing. Rick, it seems to me your father mentioned something about taking it with him. Did he say anything to you? No, sir, Rick said definitely. Why would he take the tube with him to New York? I don't have the faintest idea, Stringfellow said. Your father's in charge. I certainly wouldn't question his actions. If that were true, Zircon bellowed, then we have no need to worry. 
But if Hartson does not have the tube... But he must have, Weiss interrupted. Surely no one would steal it. Of what use would it be to anyone but us? What is this tube, anyway? Scotty asked. A special one that was made right here in the lab, Rick explained. It's the only one of its kind, and it's the most important part of the rocket control system. Exactly, Stringfellow said. It was made for the special purpose. No one would have anything to gain by stealing it. Rick could have said something at that point, but he kept silent. We will search the laboratory, Stringfellow decided. If the tube is not found, we must conclude that Hartson has it. As the scientists hurried to the lab, Scotty asked, You're sure your father wouldn't take it? Why on earth would Dad take it? Safekeeping, maybe? Or maybe to have a duplicate one made, just in case? It's possible, but not probable, Rick said. I'm going to call Dad. Using the phone in Mr. Brandt's office, he asked Barbie to get the Whiteside operator and then placed a call to the Claymore Hotel in New York. Scotty paced the floor while Rick waited impatiently. The phone buzzed. Mr. Brandt is out. He is not expected back until mid-afternoon. Do you wish me to call again? Please, Rick replied. He hung up and turned to Scotty. Another wait. We're always waiting, he said. By the time an hour had passed, Rick was growing so restless he couldn't keep still. He glared at Scotty, who was absorbed in a book. Don't you ever get nervous? Sure, but what's the sense in wearing a groove in the floor? This is getting me down. I'm going out to the lab. He went upstairs and picked up his spark coil contrivance, intending to put the finishing touches to the gadget. Keeping his hands busy might keep his mind from turning over the same questions over and over again. As he went out of the house, Scotty fell in step. I'll go along and watch. The book wasn't very good, he said. Rick grinned. You're as nervous as I am. You just keep it under better cover. Good be, Scotty admitted, grinning too. The big main room with its workbenches and test equipment was deserted. Rick placed the spark coil in a vise and made adjustments, while Scotty watched silently. He took friction tape and strapped the batteries to the wooden coil box, wiring the button to the top. It's finished, he said. Scotty inspected it. Good, now, what are you going to do with it? Rick shrugged. Nothing. He took the length of wire in his hand and placed the hand on Scotty's shoulder. Then so casually that his friends suspected nothing, he reached over and pushed the button. Scotty leapt a foot in the air and let out a yelp. Hey! Well, now I'm sure it works, Rick said, chuckling. And how? Scotty rubbed his shoulder. That shock had me up in knots for a minute. Don't do that again, pal. I won't, Rick promised. He pushed the contrivance under the bench shelf. Come on, let's go see if Mom has anything for making sandwiches. Later, armed with tall glasses of milk and sandwiches, they sat on the porch and watched a cargo ship pass by on its way to some northern port. I wonder who Scarface is, Rick asked, thinking about what they had seen and heard at the barn. Judging by the way he gave orders, he must be the boss. And I wonder what he meant when he said they had to get back to the plant, Scotty said thoughtfully. 
The word hit Rick so hard that the glass of milk slipped from his grasp and shattered unnoticed on the floor. The plant, he shouted. That's it. That's why they stole the microtron tube, to use in a laboratory of their own. Of course, Scotty exclaimed. Why didn't we think of that before? They've been stealing your father's ideas and using them in a lab just like this one. The two boys leapt to their feet. We've got to find that plant, Rick said. Yeah, but where? I don't know. Let me think. Rick's mind raced over the incidents of the past few days. There was the black plane. We could go look near the place where Mac tried to force me down. How about the gray car? Where were they headed the day you followed it? Not toward their lab. They'd be too smart for that. Inside the house, the phone jangled sharply. The boys raced into Hartz and Brandt's office. Yes? On your call to New York, we are ready, the operator intoned. In a moment, Hartz and Brandt's voice came through. Hello, Rick. What is it, son? Dad, the microtron tube is gone. Do you have it? There was hushed silence at the other end of the line. Then Hartson Brandt spoke again, and his voice sounded tired. Uh, no, Rick. Have you looked everywhere? Yes, sir. Well, that finishes us, then, the scientist said slowly. We couldn't possibly make another one in time, and that means I'll have to tell the Stone Ridge people to count us out. Please, don't do that yet, Dad, Rick pleaded. Scotty and I have an idea we want to follow up on. Give us a chance, okay, will you? Hartson Brandt thought it over for a moment. All right, son, but don't do anything foolhardy. I'll take the next train home. Rick hung up and turned to Scotty. Did you hear? Scotty nodded. Let's go. It isn't much of a chance, but we have to try it. He reached into the drawer of his father's desk and took out an old but good pair of field glasses. These are not as good as Weiss's binoculars, but they may help us spot that secret lab. Chapter 14 Down in a Wheat Field Rick climbed to a thousand feet and leveled off. No need to get any higher. We couldn't see much. Scotty nodded. This is a good altitude, high enough to see plenty of countryside. He took the binoculars from their case and held them to his eyes turning the knobs to focus them properly. These are just the ticket. I can see practically every ant in Jersey. Mosquitoes, Rick corrected. New Jersey is famous for its mosquitoes, not its ants. His eyes were scanning the horizon as he spoke, searching for any sign that might lead them to the secret laboratory. What's that? Scotty asked suddenly. Rick followed his pointing finger. Some sort of construction. Can't you see through the glasses? Scotty shook his head. Not very clearly. It's round, I think, and pretty high. What? Rick grabbed for the binoculars. Let's see. He took the glasses and held them to his eyes, trying to make out what Scotty had seen. The structure on the horizon was cylindrical, reaching into the air above the treetops. He handed the glasses back to Scotty and rocked the little plane over in a tight bank, heading for the strange edifice. What do you make of it? Scotty asked. I don't know for sure, replied Rick grimly, but it could be a rocket launching device. A round frame like that could support a rocket. As they came closer to the structure, Rick put the cub into a shallow dive, 
the nose pointing straight at the cylinder. Scotty shot him a worried look, which Rick interpreted correctly. Don't worry, I'm not going to fly into it. I just want to get down where we can get a good look at it. The cylinder was near a group of buildings, invisible until now because of the concealing foliage and their neutral coat of paint. The structure itself glared red, with fresh color standing out sharply against the green of the surrounding trees. Rick eased back on the control wheel as the ground flashed up. The cub shot over the cylinder scarcely a hundred feet above the ground, then zoomed skyward again. Scotty and Rick looked at each other, and suddenly they were laughing. <laughs> Rocket launcher, Scotty said. Oh, great. Rick shook his head. Well, you saw it first, remember? I guess neither of us would make good farmers, not knowing a new silo when we see one. It was the top that fooled me. I'd never seen a silo with the top off, at least not from the air. They passed over the town of Whiteside. A mile beyond, Rick saw a clearing in the woods that looked vaguely familiar. Had that been the place where Mac tried to force him down so close to town? He phrased the question aloud, and Scotty answered, could be. I don't imagine you were in a mood to notice distances with that plane on your tail. Well, let's take a look, Rick said. Again, he put the cub in a dive, holding it well above the treetop level this time. The clearing passed underneath. I didn't see a thing, Rick declared. Neither did I. But wait, what's that on the opposite side? Scotty was looking through the field glasses. I don't see anything. Rick said. Go back. I want another look. I saw something gleam as we passed over. Looked like the sun on glass. Rick banked around and brought the little plane back on a straight line to the center of the open field. This time, Scotty knew where to look. I see it, he exclaimed. A car, right at the edge of the woods. Then, as they passed close, he turned with an exultant yell. It's a gray stand! Are you sure? Take another look, Scotty. Yeah, I'm sure. I don't believe in coincidences. There can't be very many gray sedans of that make in this neck of the woods. But why would it be at the clearing? I don't see any buildings. Search me. Besides, Mac wouldn't have tried to force me down over their own field. If I got away, which I did, it'd be too easy to find them. Could be, Scotty conceded. Well, we've found some trace of the gray car. Now what? I don't know. I wish we were sure. They were flying in a wide circle, 500 feet above the woods. Now he turned back toward the field. I'm going to take a closer look. Hang on to your hat, he said. I haven't got a hat, Scotty said grimly. I'm going to hang on to my stomach if you're going to try anything fancy. Rick let the cub down until the wheels were almost touching the treetops and headed straight for the gray car. As they sped across the clearing, Scotty let out a wild yell. Get out of here, quick! They're shooting at us! Rick jabbed the throttle and lifted the small plane's nose. As the edge of the clearing and the gray blur of the sedan passed below, he caught a glimpse of an orange flash. The cub was a thousand feet in the air before he leveled off. When he turned to Scotty, his face was white. They were really shooting. You weren't kidding, he said shakily. Not me. I know muzzle flashes when I see them. He took a deep breath. Boy, this is past the joking stage. 
I'm scared. If that's the kind of mugs we have to deal with, I'm thinking we'd be better to call out a platoon of Marines. Well, I've had enough, Rick said grimly. I'm going to land at the Whiteside Airport, then I'm going to have a talk with the police. They can't explain this away like they did the Shields. Well, that's the best thing to do, Scotty agreed. Rick glanced down at the terrain below, trying to get his bearings. While they had talked, the cub had been flying on a straight line due west. His friend glanced down, then turned to him and said, What's that white stuff? What white stuff? Underneath your plane. Scotty pointed to a stream of vapor that flowed beneath them. The color washed out of Rick's face. He leaned forward and snapped off the switch, simultaneously pushing forward on the control wheel. The engine coughed once and died, leaving the propeller windmilling uncertainly. Hey, Scotty cried. What did you do that for? That white stuff, Rick said tersely, was gasoline. One spark from the exhaust and we'd be blown up. The silence pressed in on them, relieved only by the faint sound of air rushing past the gliding plane. Scotty fell silent, tightening his safety belt. Rick leaned far out his window, searching for the best place to put the cub down. The only level place in sight was a wheat field next to a large farm that looked awfully small. Like trying to land on a handkerchief, Scotty said dryly. Rick's voice sounded strained. We'll make it. Relax. Who are you trying to convince? Rick's eyes never left the field. They were flying parallel to it, losing altitude rapidly. He had to gauge their descent just right and make a 180-degree turn, which would end right at the boundary fence. Otherwise, they might not stop before the other fence was reached. His hands on the control wheel were damp with sweat, and a stream of perspiration poured down his face. After pulling the plane around in a tight turn, he saw at once that he was going to overshoot the mark. He began fishtailing, kicking the rudder from one side to the other. The boundary fence drifted past and they were over the field, the cub wabbling from side to side. Then he pulled the control wheel all the way back. The tail went down and the nose was pointed skyward. They pancaked to the earth with a jar and rolled forward through grain that was cockpit high, losing speed rapidly as they bumped over the rough earth. When the plane came to a stop, Scotty let the air out of his lungs audibly. Nice flying, but how are we going to get out of here? Rick looked around. The field was indeed the size of a postage stamp. It's small, but I can make it if the wheat were cut. Not now you couldn't. Not without gas in this thing. Well, that's right, Rick said wryly. Let's see about that. He climbed out and patted the earth lovingly and grinned up at Scotty. I was afraid we were going to hit this ground a little harder. As Scotty climbed out, Rick walked to the engine covering and began unsnapping the patent screws with his jackknife. In a moment, he had it off and was probing the engine's innards. Take a look, he said, holding up a piece of fuel line. There's a hole right through it. And here's where the bullet came in, Scotty said, pointing to a hole in the cowling. And here's where it hit, Rick added, indicating a bright splash of metal on the engine itself. The boys looked at each other, then at the cabin, so close behind the spot where the bullet had struck. Look, Rick, having fistfights with this gang and doing nice, clean detective work is one thing, 
but having gunfights with them when they have all the guns, well, that's just plain ridiculous. I agree with you, Rick answered, looking across the top of the waving wheat. But what can we do? We could call the cops in on this. That's what we can do. And get in touch with your dad. Well, right now, I think we'd better prepare for another battle, Rick said. Here comes the farmer. Thrashing through the wheat toward them came a sunburned man with a pitchfork in his hand. His eyes swept the length of the destruction wrought by the Cubs' forced landing and then stopped on the boys themselves. You made a fine mess of my wheat, he said tartly. I'm sorry, sir, as the farmer arrived at the plane. We just had to come down. I saw you. I told my wife Martha. I got that wheat insured against anything from hurricanes to snowstorms, but not airplanes. And I'll bet that's just where that thing is going to land. And it did. Believe me, sir, we'd have preferred to stay in the air, but we'll pay for your wheat. The farmer wiped his red face with a blue handkerchief and looked at the ruined wheat as though estimating the cost. Time enough for that later. My wife was worried to death about you young fools breaking your necks in our field. You better come along and show her you're all right. How'd it happen? Oh, just a little engine trouble, Rick answered, throwing a silencing wink at Scotty. The farmer remained silent the rest of the way to the big house. As they stepped out of the field, the boy saw a motherly-looking woman and red gingham anxiously looking their way. They're all right, mother, the man called. Now, he said, turning to the boys, how can you get that thing out of my field? Well, first off, we'll need a phone. Do you have one? Rick asked. Yep, right in the living room. I better call my mom first, Rick said. He called the Spindrift Island number, and in a moment his mother's cheerful voice answered, and he explained rapidly what had happened, omitting the fact that the broken fuel line had been cut by a bullet. How long will it be before you can get home? she asked. Rick squinted out at the fast-fading light. If I can get Gus to bring me a fuel line, I'll be home tonight, Mom. Otherwise, I might have to stay here till morning. Well, do the best you can, his mother said, and be careful. Rick smiled at the slightly tardy advice, reassured her, and said goodbye. I hope Gus can get that fuel line to us. Better not waste any time calling him. Rick called the Whiteside Airport number. Gus on this end. Who's on that end? It's Rick, Gus. I'm down in a wheat field ten miles away. Do you have a fuel line in stock? Sure. What's the matter? Broken line, Rick said briefly. And I'll need gas. I lost quite a bit. Can you fly it over? Afraid not. My kite's down for the 100-hour check. It won't be in flying shape for a couple days. I'll drive the stuff over. Okay, Rick agreed reluctantly. He gave the mechanic directions for reaching the farm and hung up. Scotty noticed that Rick's hands were shaking. What's the matter? He asked anxiously. I guess I'm just beginning to realize what a close shave we had. Why on earth did they shoot at us, do you suppose? I don't know, Scotty answered. This is the first time they've come right out and played rough, with guns, that is. I think one of those guys just lost his head. Well, it looks like we'll have to stay here all night, Rick said finally. We? You think that's wise? Scotty asked. What do you mean? Well, personally, I think one of us should be back on that island. Oh, you're right, Rick answered but I have to stay and fly the cub out. I'll go back, Scotty said, 
If they started shooting at us, who knows what they might do on that island or we're away. When they reached the porch, the farmer was waiting for them. Did you get help? He inquired. Yes, sir. I'm afraid we'll have to stay in your wheat field overnight. I'm not equipped for night flying, and my fuel line won't get here until after dark. He turned to Scotty. How are you going to get to Whiteside? Rick asked. Scotty held up his thumb. Remember what I was using this for when you met me? He answered, grinning. Well, I'm going to put it to work on the road right now. I'll ask Barbie to pick me up in the speedboat when I get there. Rick shook his head. Be careful, he warned. These guys are getting rough, so keep your eyes open when you get back to the island. Don't worry, he said, nodding. He headed out to the driveway, and Rick saw him disappear up the road. The farmer and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Collins, did their best to make Rick feel at home. Shortly after supper, Gus drove up. Working rapidly, he and Rick made the repairs and filled the tank. Rick returned to the farmhouse, and Gus drove back to Whiteside. I'd like to make an early start of it, Rick told Mr. Collins. I'm afraid I'll have to have some of that grain cut so that I can take off. We'll do it in the morning. You just go to bed and don't worry about the price of the wheat, neither. Rick was led to the room that Mrs. Collins had already prepared for him. He was exhausted and dropped wearily into the soft bed. Neither worry nor memories of the exciting day could keep him awake. And soon, he was asleep. <laughs>